Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. Another great chapter is coming to an end. The ripples of fate have been steadily spreading throughout Malifaux and beyond. Tonight, we begin an epic four-part tale of loyalty, betrayal, and new beginnings. I hope you enjoy part one of Ripples of Fate, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by the Bread and Roses Bar. Hard day in the mines? Take the edge off with a pint and a shot at Bread and Roses. Show your union card for 10% off. Guild sympathisers not welcome. Ripples of Fate by Matthew Farrer and Mason Crawford July 18th, 1906 Some stories claimed that the soul stones in Lucius Matteson's mask glowed green from nightfall to sunrise. It wasn't true. The carefully cut gems that fitted into the eyes of his mask generated no glow, nor did any light shine from behind them. When the light was low, however, an observer might be forgiven for thinking that the green-tinted lenses were reflecting more light than was falling upon them. The only light that was falling on them now was from the hundreds of lanterns that lit up the holding pens below him. Lucius stood on the battlements that made up the roof of Malifaux City's courthouse, leaning elegantly against the parapet as he watched the turmoil below. It had been two months since the death of the Governor-General, and he had used every hour of that time seizing as much power as he was able. He had taken his time with it. A few words in the right ear here, an intimidated guard captain there, a few troublesome clerks murdered on their way home from work so that their more amenable subordinates could receive a promotion. But he had seized it nevertheless, one subtle move at a time. A wagon was pulling away from one of the yards, bound for the convict barracks in the industrial zone, no doubt. His proclamation, it was couched in all the proper deference for the guild's protocols and the empty seat of the Governor-General, but it was proclamation just the same, had named the Miners and Steamfitters Union as accomplices in the death of the Governor-General, and the past two weeks had been a flurry of patrols and arrests. Even with his lawyers holding their trials all through the night, they were simply unable to keep up with how quickly the guild guard kept bringing them in. The holding zones were a temporary solution for keeping the men and women of the Union contained while they awaited their sentencing, but Lucius was toying with the idea of keeping them, even after the trials were over. The sound of a faint chime from behind his shoulder distracted him from his thoughts. It has been five minutes, a tired voice pointed out. I will not wait another five. 
Lucius took his time turning to regard the speaker, the light falling away from his mask until it became just a featureless patch of gloom beneath the curls of his wig. Standing there in his metal walking harness, Charles Hoffman looked just as dispirited as his voice sounded. My apologies, Mr. Hoffman. I must not have heard you arrive. He shifted his pose a little, leaning forward and folding both of his hands atop his cane as he regarded his fellow guild administrator. On paper, they were both technically equals, but in Lucius' mind there was simply no comparison between him and the tired mechanic. Did you have any trouble with the stairs? I should hope that my messenger was considerate enough to warn you. Some of them are rather shallow. He glanced down at the massive metallic legs of Hoffman's walking harness. I managed. Thank you. A flicker of annoyance crept into Hoffman's voice. What was it you wanted? I have paperwork to finish. Ah, yes. Your paperwork. Lucius began slowly strolling along the edge of the battlements, his cane marking every second step. I had a few questions about some of the paperwork you filed yesterday. You see, I had been under the impression that we were both working together in order to capture the murderer of our late employer. Hoffman was forced to turn in order to keep Lucius in his field of vision. That is your own crusade, Mattison. I've assigned my watchers, as you've asked, but there are other tasks that need attention as well. Someone has to sign the payroll checks and ammunition requisition forms. And with Sonya still recovering from her burns and Lady Justice fighting back against the undead in the eastern slums, there is nobody else of sufficient rank save for the two of us. I am certain that the accountants still need approval for each purchase order and dispensation of guild funds. Hoffman interrupted. There are reports that must be filed and sent back to Vienna, troop movements that need to be coordinated with the captains of the guard, quarantine procedures for the tuberculosis outbreak in the southern slums that need to be approved, meetings with the representatives of Condor Rails over what we intend to do about the railroad blockades in the northern hills. All of which... Hoffman started to interrupt him again, but Lucius took a single step toward the other man as he continued, drowning Hoffman out through sheer force of personality. All of which can be handled by your subordinates. His gloved fingers tapped against the head of his cane. Interrupt me again, Mr. Hoffman, and this discussion will take a much less pleasant turn. Hoffman waited for the span of three heartbeats before he replied, just to be certain that Lucius had finished speaking. My apologies, Secretary. My office has been inundated by complaints from the manufacturers in the industrial zone over the sudden lack of Union steam fitters, many of whom are languishing down there in those pens of yours. Every time your court send a steam fitter to hang on the tree, it hurts the city's ability to keep our forces supplied. We're bleeding from a thousand little cuts, and your trials aren't helping things. Lucius sighed, as if unconcerned with the entire affair. I never claimed that you weren't busy. Mr. Hoffman, I merely have a few questions about the anomalies that were brought to my attention. He kept walking, taking a petty sort of pleasure in how Hoffman kept having to turn around in a circle. It was tempting to increase his pace just to see if he could make the other man dizzy, but it was merely a passing fancy. Two days ago, 
Two watchers disappeared over the eastern slums. Both accounted for, Hoffman replied a little too quickly. One was sabotaged by scavengers and is now back in our hands, Soulstone included. We know the other is in custody of the Katanaka Trading House. I reported as much to you at the time. If you recall, you claimed it was a political issue and that you... Lucius waved his hand dismissively. Yesterday, a squadron of guardians disregarded their rendezvous at the half-six southern gate and struck out into the quarantine zone instead, and arrived in the burns without undue damage. They were serviced at the Glamour Street depot and have been stationed at the outpost there until an aircar can be spared to retrieve them. The foot platoon that those guardians were to accompany on their patrol had the good sense to remain at their wall house for a replacement squadron before they began their assignment, Hoffman finished, his annoyance growing. You mean to say that they've collected a day's worth of wages to cool their heels in the howling slums instead of carrying out my instructions, Lucius corrected him. This morning, the death marshals in the eastern slums were expecting the assistance of four hunters, which they, and I, had been told would be helping them clean up the last of the undead wandering in the area. I can only imagine where they might have gotten off to. Hoffman reached up to massage his temples with one hand. A lot of constructs haven't returned from the eastern slums, Hoffman said. Behavioural ticks and constructs are as routine as worn bearings or leaky connections, and we can't fully rule out the possibility of arcanist interference. Zombies can pull a machine apart just as easily as a living, breathing person. Are you honestly surprised that some of them haven't returned? Very little surprises me these days, Mr. Hoffman. Lucius abandoned his circular pacing and glided back into the shadows by the battlements and turned away. Tell me, Charles, where is your brother these days? Hoffman's eyes narrowed, and at his side his hands clenched into fists. He managed to keep his anger from spilling out into his voice, however. If you have a problem with the way I'm managing my constructs, file a formal report with the new Governor-General when he arrives next week. Until then, I have more important work to do. He turned and let the metal legs of his walking harness carry him toward the doorway up ahead. Lucius was a dozen yards away, but his voice carried clearly through the night. I worry that you think you're getting away with it, Charles. Hoffman didn't look back as he approached the stairs. His casualness to Lucius about how difficult they'd been to navigate had been a lie. They were bloody murder, almost literally. Each step was so shallow that even a normal human foot would have barely found purchase, let alone the great metal boots of Hoffman's leg struts. Twice he had to turn around, extend his frame's upper limbs and go down backwards, fitting his metal limbs into finger and toe holds like a rock climber. There was no question that Madison would have known how hard it would be for Hoffman to get up to the roof. That would have been the whole point to meeting with him there, to set him off balance. As Hoffman reached the ground floor of the courthouse, his mechanical attendant fell into step behind him. It was a rounded little thing perched on delicate steel legs, and as they walked, he felt inside of it with his mind letting the machinery sink its shape into his awareness, as though it were displacing water in a basin. He could feel the tiny Ethervox antenna inside it, and with a thought, gears clicked into place and sent a pulsing signal out to his watchers. He stomped through the crowded hallways of the courthouse, rudely pushing past Lucius' lawyers, 
but waiting patiently for the guardsmen and their string of Union prisoners to pass him before continuing forward. One of them, a young boy with a fresh black eye, craned his neck upward and spit on Hoffman's face as he passed. Grimacing, he pulled out a handkerchief and wiped the unpleasantness away as the boy was beaten to the ground by a bald guard captain. Sorry about that, Mr. Hoffman, the captain shouted after him as Hoffman heard the snap of breaking bones. Hoffman forced his eyes closed and let his harness carry him the rest of the way, not opening them again until he reached the courthouse. The fresh night air was a welcome change from the stuffiness of the courthouse, but the view, the fenced-in yards cloaked in shadow and lantern light, each packed full of Union members shouting about their rights, wasn't much of an improvement at all. There was a metallic screech from overhead, and Hoffman glanced upwards as the watcher he'd sent for descended from the darkened sky and landed in front of him. All right, then, he said, holding out his hand toward the winged construct. Out with it. There was a clicking sound from within the construct's chest, and then a compartment in its chest slid open, allowing him to reach inside and collect the thin cylinder within. Any luck, he asked, knowing full well that the watcher couldn't answer him. Hoffman glanced down at the roll of a 120mm film for a moment, as though hoping it would magically develop itself, then handed it off to his mechanical attendant to take care of. Let's hope we have her this time. Essie wasn't sure how the guild had found her. Sure, she'd gone out on a limb a few days ago, but since then she'd been following all of the normal arcanist protocols for laying low and keeping out of sight. Street clothes, avoid any union contacts or meeting spots, stay indoors and out of sight. She had done everything right. The operative across the street was supposed to put a red flag in his window if he noticed any guild guard approaching the building, and she had made it a point of glancing out the window every twenty minutes or so, just to make sure that she was still in the clear. It was tedious work, but there wasn't much else for her to do in the empty second-story apartment. She had just turned away from the window, coast clear yet again, when it exploded inward in a shower of glass. Essie had shrieked in surprise, and was just starting to turn when the mechanical panther slammed into her like an iron fist. There was a burst of pain and a flash of light as her head hit the floor, and when she had blinked away the pain, the hunter construct had locked its steel jaws around her fleshy neck. It had taken the guild guard five minutes to show up and slap the control collar on her, five long minutes that had felt like an eternity as she stared up into the construct's unblinking glass eye lenses. Even now, hours later in her cell, she could almost swear that she could feel those steel fangs pressing up against her flesh. It was enough to send a shiver up her spine. Essie sat up and stretched her arms above her head. Instead of putting her into one of the holding pens in the center of the enclave, the guild had tossed her into a cell in the prison. It was little more than a tiny box, barely longer than the wooden bench bed along one wall. Three of the walls were stone, and the fourth was a steel door with a covered viewing slit about as wide as three of her fingers. On the floor sat a basin of wash water, a bar of soap, and a metal pail whose intended purpose was both obvious and loathsome. A small lantern recessed in the wall behind the sturdy metal grating provided light. She assumed that she should be washing herself or working on an escape plan, but she couldn't find the energy. Her stupor was broken by the steady sound of slow metallic footsteps coming from outside her cell. Her first terrifying thought was that the guild was going to let the hunter finish off what it had started, but as the footsteps grew closer, it became clear that the footsteps were far bulkier than the hunters. 
One of the guild's warden constructs, then. Essie knew that they used them to patrol their work camps, so it wouldn't have been out of place to find one stalking the halls of their prison. The footsteps stopped outside her door, and Essie pressed her ear against the steel door as she heard talking on the other side. But she's not physically hurt. The voice was masculine and cultured, with a strong British accent. Bit of a coin toss whenever one of your hunters is involved, sir. No offense intended, but she looked fine to me. The second man's voice was deeper and rougher around the edges. And the control collar is in place. Yes, sir. Shouldn't have any problems with this one's finger waggling. Good show. If you would, please. Essie heard a jangle of keys, and she quickly hopped back and sat herself down on the wooden wall bench in about as non-threatening a manner as she was able. When the door opened, she at first thought that the guild had brought in some sort of construct to interrogate her. Then her eyes adjusted to the light, and she realized who she was looking at. It was a man in an elegant prosthetic framework of struts, braces, and calipers, all gleaming with polish from the metal boots all the way up the second arms and the shoulder frame. Slipped into the framework, like a prize to be won at a carnival, was a slender little man in a slightly dowdy brown suit, his bald head catching the lamplight almost as brightly as his frame did. Essie knew him. Every engineer in Malifaux did. She raised her hands defensively in front of her. I don't know what you think I might have done, sir, she pleaded, but I can promise you this, Mr. Hoffman, I have never in my life done anything to bypass the guidelines set down by the Amalgamation Charter. When he didn't answer, she tried to insist. Never, sir, not ever. Jolly good to hear it, Hoffman said distractedly. He turned his head towards the unseen guard. Shut the door behind me and leave us. I will lock it back up when I'm finished. He waited until the cell's door was shut and the man's footsteps had faded to silence before reaching into his coat and producing a stack of photographs. He didn't even glance at them as he handed them over to Essie. Miss Esther Stitch, Steamfitter First Class, Miners and Steamfitters Union for three years since your arrival in Malifaux, and an arcanist operative for, well, I assume roughly the same length of time. Whoa, hold on, she protested, leaning back from Hoffman. The cell was cramped and his mechanical frame had no option but to loom over her. I'm not an arcanist, Mr. Hoffman. This is all a mistake. Hoffman gestured to the photographs. The proof is right there, Miss Stitch. Do take a look. Essie glanced down at the black and white photographs. They were all of her, at an angle that seemed to imply that the photographer had been somehow above her. One showed her channeling bolts of electricity into a walking corpse that was clutching for her throat. Another had her bending down, helping a fallen woman to her feet with one hand, as the other created a shimmering, semi-transparent dome of force around them. She turned her gaze back up toward Hoffman, expecting a grin of victory from the man, but finding only a blank expression. So, she said, holding them back out to him as she spit out the words. What now? Is this the part where you offer to spare me from the noose in exchange for rolling on some of my fellow arcanists? Hoffman made no attempt to reach for the photographs. Yes, it is. Specifically, the woman in the picture on the bottom of the stack. Essie shuffled past more pictures of herself, these less incriminating than the others, including one that showed her looking out through the window of the safe house, until she found the photograph he was referring to. In it, a tall woman with long dark hair was leading a hulking amalgamation of steel and sutured flesh away from what looked to be the corpses of three guild guards. 
Something about the woman's clothing was odd, and as Essie peered closer, she realized that it was actually some sort of clockwork device fashioned in the shape of a dress. She stared at the picture for a moment longer, then shook her head and looked up to Hoffman. Sorry, I've never seen her in my life. Truly. His expression fell in disappointment as he took the pictures back from her and tucked them back into his coat. A pity. Good luck with the gallows, Miss Sitch. He began to turn back toward the door, prompting Essie to leap to her feet. Wait! Hoffman paused and looked back over the mechanical shoulder of his walking harness. Did something prompt your memory, Miss Sitch? Essie held her hands in front of her in a hold-on gesture. No, no, I've truly never seen her before, but I know people out there, other arcanists, ones involved in recruiting. One of them has to know who she is, and I can talk to them and find out for you. The sound of Hoffman's metal boots clomping on the stone filled the silence as he turned back to face her. You have no issues with betraying your fellow arcanists to save yourself. Of course I have issues. She scowled as she stared up at him, unwilling to back down from his imposing stature. I'm also out of choices. Things have been uncomfortable since... Since Karis took over, he thought. The guild started these roundups. Maybe this is just a sign that it's time to get out of the game. She exhaled in resignation and sat back down on the bench, looking up at him. Besides, Mr. Hoffman, you're one of the good ones, right? You and Lady Justice? Her expression softened, betraying a bit of her fear. In the three years I've been here, I haven't heard a word about you or the death marshals coming after someone that didn't deserve it. If that woman's messing around with amalgamation like the photo makes it seem, then she's more resurrectionist than arcanist in my book. A pained look crossed Hoffman's face, but he forced himself to smile nevertheless. Glad to hear it. It will take the rest of the day to push the paperwork for your release past Madison's lawyers, but I expect that everything should be in order by tomorrow morning. I will pick you up at five to eight. Essie watched him turn and exit the cell, locking it behind him with a deafening thud. Do try to behave until then, Miss Sitch, he said, his voice muffled by the door. And then she could hear him walking away, his metallic footsteps echoing down the hallway. She slumped back against the wall, trying to forget about the hunk of metal around her neck and force her shaking arms to be still. At some point sleep did come to her, but her dreams were chilly and dark, filled with steel jaws and clomping footsteps. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of Ripples of Fate.